the United States being as large, diverse, and multifaceted a population and country as it is, some individuals have far more in common with a citizen across the other side of the world, whether that be demographically, whether that be philosophically. And many of these big ideas are in fact enshrined in traditions to which we already adhere. Rebecca, hi, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So it's our second time, actually, that we've had uh, someone to talk about world federalism on the show. So I'm excited to have done some homework for this, I guess, from my previous <laughs> experience in recording. Uh, and yeah, spoiler alert for the audience, this is what we're going to be talking about today. So to get to the meat of it, you are executive director at Citizens for Global Solutions. So can you give me and the audience kind of an overview of your organization and its work and of you yourself as well? Sure. Well, thank you again for having me um, on the podcast. I'm a big fan of Fogs and Katoikos.world, um, your mission of thinking uh, about globalization on human terms. I think adheres very closely to CGS's mission. So I think it was only a matter of time before we made this connection. Citizens for Global Solutions has been around for more than 75 years. We are indeed, as you gestured, part of the World Federalist Movement, and we were started as the World Federalist Association. Um, we're a non-governmental, non-partisan, non-profit organization that advocates for democratic global governance, the rule of law, and the protection of human rights. And we seek to do so through a united democratic world federation predicated on respect for individual liberties and rights. Um, in terms of the audience for our organization, we are a U.S.-based organization, and I think we'll get to some of the um, interesting elements that um, happen when you are based in the United States and work on global issues uh, later in yes. the conversation. There's some nuances <laughs> in that uh, direction, for sure. Exactly. And we um, advocate domestically as a people-powered movement uh, seeking for greater global cooperation for a unified world governance system. Um, some of our founders will be well known, um, Einstein, um, William Fulbright, and some less so to those outside the World Federalist Movement, but very important thinkers of their day from Clarence Streit to Rosie Schrimmer. Um, and Gary Davis, and happy to delve into their, their legacies at greater uh, length, but also eager to talk about the future of the organization and the problems that we confront today. Amazing. Wow, Einstein, seriously. Yes, I know. <laughs> Big shoes. I was, I was like, did I hear that right? Okay. <laughs> Amazing. So as an organization, what would you say in those 75 years that you've been active, have been your biggest challenges so far, and what were some of your most notable successes? So the challenges are multiple, and I think come down to both philosophical and practical challenges. Um, world federalism um, and advocating for a democratic world federation is a big idea, and big ideas can be scary. Um, they also can seem out of touch with individuals' day-to-day -day existence. So I think one of the greatest challenges that is both practical and philosophical is raising public support and awareness and debunking some of the myths about what democratic world federation might look like. Um, beyond that, I would say that some of the challenges that we face 
are the prevailing norms of national sovereignty and power imbalances and inequalities that serve so many so well and at the same time alienate, isolate, and disenfranchise uh, so many around the world. There are many vested interests that prefer the system as it is and are not capable or interested, perhaps, in imagining a different world. So philosophically, there is also the question of, wow, these ideas are huge. They're very large. They can seem Pollyanna-ish. They can seem quixotic. Um, so how do you go about carving out a pathway to this global world future? And we do have examples of successes that meet these challenges. Um, basically, every idea that's advanced globalization has seen quixotic from the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1907 that were the first multilateral treaties codifying conduct of warfare through, of course, the League of Nations, the founding of the United Nations in 1945, and more recent phenomenon like the establishment of the International Criminal Court. And mm. this year, July 17th, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Rome Statute. That's a very real development that happened mm -hmm. in our lifetime and is one of the greatest successes that I think our movement and CGS specifically can point to. We're a founding member of the Coalition for the International Criminal Court. And despite a um, spotty at best, and I think that's probably euphemistic, relationship between the United States and the International Criminal Court, our organization and the other members' organizations of the CICC were integral in its founding. And I don't think we would have that institution without the role that civil society organizations like ours played. Wow. Okay. Such a... <laughs> Such a history of, of involvement. I actually didn't know until this point that you were in the you were a founding member of the International Criminal Court. Okay. The, so the Coalition what, a... for the International Criminal Court, which is um, an organization, um, a broad ranging network of more than 1000 civil society organizations that were integral to the establishment of the court, but also right. continue to play a very important critical role in its continued evolution, because it is very much a work in progress. Okay, great. All right. So from what we've said so far, I mean, uh, Citizens for Global Solutions is an organization that seems very much oriented towards multilateralism, or at least in general towards kind of a multilateral approach to international relations, let's say. And uh, you talk a lot about the UN, and you even have uh, model UN reform projects. So that's definitely a topic that we love talking about on the podcast, if you've checked out previous episodes. So yeah, generally about the UN and how it can be changed for the better. So what is your vision for UN reform? Um, so I think that's a multi-layered question that I'd like to unpack and, and take in component parts, um, if that's all right. Um, mm -hmm. Firstly, I think that there's an assumption in the premise when you mentioned that we are an organization that cares about multilateralism. Um, or at least multilateralism in the concept of international relations. And I think that might be, there might be a false assumption there because already baked into that notion, that premise, uh, that capitulation is a dynamic of interaction between Westphalian nation states. And I mm. think we're seeking to rise beyond that and connect okay. the individual at the utmost personal level to the global. And this does not necessarily, and I want to debunk um, any myths out there, or misconceptions, this does not mean replacing the nation state as we know it, or doing away with nationalities. 
But it is observing that international global challenges that transcend borders require global solutions and that the current system of nation states may not be serving uh, citizens of the world in, in the way in which it was uh, conceived to do. Um, so that's the, my first part of my answer. Secondly, thanks when, for the clarification. I didn't think of that actually. So yeah, very good point. No, no, I think it's an important conversation to have, and um, please don't take it as a correction. But I think an important part of um, the dialogue moving forward um, regarding right. the United Nations reform, um, our organization, our movement, was integral to the founding of the United Nations, and we are a big tent with a lot of different opinions on what the pathway to a more effective, efficient, inclusive uh, United Nations might look like. We're a member of the Coalition for the UN We Need, um, as well as UN 75 and a number of other organizations that seek to bring a variety of civil society perspectives into a dialogue that is primarily among nation states about what a United Nations that serves all might look like. There's no one perfect model. There's no one answer that I think everybody can agree upon at this moment. But what we do know is that the UN should not um, be a servant of major powers. Um, it should not reinforce existing dichotomies or disparities in the world and should work towards the ultimate goals, whether they be the previous Millennium Development Goals, the current Sustainable Development Goals that have been deemed necessary to advance the needs of humanity and of our planet itself. In terms of our UN programming, we do have a Model UN Plus program. And I think most people might be familiar with the Model United Nations, where it is a way for young people to emulate and replicate the current systems at the United Nations. It's a very efficient learning tool for interpersonal dynamics, as well as, of course, the global dynamics and the systems and processes at the United Nations. The way that the Model UN Reform Project, or Model UN Plus, builds on this is that it considers not only the current processes and procedures the way they are now, but how they might look in a future where the P5, the big political powers that currently are enshrined within the United Nations Security Council, are not always calling the shots. There have been a number of wonderful ways that young people have gotten engaged with this movement. And uh, I think one thing that our programs prove is that really great ideas can come from anywhere. Some individuals think that the United Nations is so broken that you need to scrap it and start from scratch. That is certainly a valid opinion. Others believe in a more incremental approach. And we've seen a lot of, I think, innovative ideas and suggestions and recommendations coming from youth. For example, um, we sponsored this year young people to participate in a global summit, the Global Futures Forum. and. Um, teams came together and came up with very practical, concrete concepts and suggestions for implementable reforms. One of the young people with whom I work with on my staff has suggested an international dialogue on global healing, drawing from transitional justice processes um, at the domestic and regional level. These are all ideas that I think are worth sharing, and I think they're implementable um, in the short to medium term. Mm -hmm. Obviously, UN Security Council reform is the elephant in the room when it comes to UN reform conversations. Absolutely. 
And I believe, I hope that that is imminent. It seems impossible, perhaps. But as I mentioned at the outset, I think all of the major ideas of globalization have seemed impossible. Um, I would highly recommend some scholarship on the legal limits, the existing legal limits of the veto power within the UN Security Council, as well as some of the um, more blue sky thinking about what a reform Security Council could look like. And um, again, this is a sliding scale where uh, complete abolition is on one side, and we try to serve as a con convener and a forum for all of these ideas uh, to see the light of day. Okay. I mean, as you said, the ideas of this magnitude have a longer hatching time in a sense, you know? They, they, they need the decades and decades to kind of rise from just the world of ideas into such huge uh, global structures that actually are embedded in the way the world works. So, mm -hmm. I mean, nobody could have thought that the UN would have done the things it has done today and grown to what it is, but here we are. So, yeah, I mean, what, you, what you said sounds sounds good to me, and I love that there's a I love that there's a model UN with a twist on it that kind of involves potentially new ideas for the evolution of multilateralism. So I think that sets even the the newer generation gives some new food for thought, let's say, to implement in their future careers. So that that's great, I think. Uh, so besides uh, its involvement with all things related to the United Nations, which we have talked a lot about uh, so far. Your organization is a movement that also subscribes to the ideology of world federalism, which is a concept that, uh, as I said before in the beginning, we've kind of touched on before in the podcast, in our episode with Eston McKeague of the Young World Federalists. So you're an organization based in the US, and this is what you hinted at in the beginning, this question, <laughs> which is a country that kind of has a tendency towards isolationism and exceptionalism. I mean, we saw that that was even more rampant during uh, Donald Trump's term, right? But it's always been kind of an element of the way the US handles its foreign policy and its external relations with other countries and groupings of countries and international organizations and such. So for you, what is it like to be active in your area of expertise? in an ecosystem, a political ecosystem like that, that doesn't really support that kind of sentiment? Well, it's certainly been, I think, the the challenge of the juxtaposition um, of my career, if not my life. Um, but I do think that it is um, inaccurate or at least misleading to look at the United States as monolithic in that respect. Um, our narrative is not linear, and while there, when there is an individual or an administration with a megaphone championing a worldview that shies away from global engagement, it can be difficult to see the, the nuances and the many pockets of support across the United States, both in positions of power and at the individual level. And I, again, um, want to reiterate that we are a people-powered movement and really believe that the electorate can inform change. I wear a different hat sometimes as the co-convener of the Washington Working Group for the International Criminal Court, which is a very loose collective of individuals, organizations, legal professionals 
um, dedicated to a more positive relationship with the ICC. So I can use that perhaps as a metonym for a broader discussion about U.S. engagement with international institutions and with the idea of globalism itself. I spend a lot of time with my WIC hat on talking about the history and important relationship that the United States played in not only the establishment of the court, but in its juridical underpinnings and its continued operations. A lot of people who see the bugaboo or the specter of an ICC as something threatening to U.S. domestic judicial systems and legal processes, I think would be unaware of the fact that our um, legal system, really, the ink is very visible on the legal system of the ICC and its predecessors, the International Criminal Tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. Moreover, we, the United States, were integral in the surrender and eventual conviction of two of the earliest and most prominent individuals ever captured by the court and who have seen justice, international criminals who committed egregious um, and widespread crimes against humanity and war crimes in the DRC and in Uganda. And if it had not been for U.S. cooperation, they would not have seen justice and there would not have been accountability for the victims and survivors um, in their communities. I also would like to recall, of course, that we were integral in the foundation of the United Nations and cannot overlook the premises and the geographical locality of the United Nations. This is not a coincidence. So while the uh, narrative of exceptionalism and the narrative of isolationism uh, has gained speed, and I think the voices are vociferous, who call for it, I think it ignores a lot of practical realities and a lot of the history um, that is so richly intertwined between the United States and judicial institutions worldwide, as well as the United Nations itself. Mm -hmm. That's a good insight, to be honest. I wasn't super knowledgeable about how the, the, the internal dynamics of, of the U.S. work in that regard, but I want to hear a bit more Oh, and thank you for clarifying how it is to be a, a, a globalist, let's say, or someone that is uh, for multilateralism and international organizations. Um, yeah, but what I want to hear a bit more from you is how it has perhaps made your life a bit more difficult or how these sort of voices that you mentioned that are kind of against this whole um, tendency towards accepting the world into your politics or being a bit more social, quote unquote, uh, mm -hmm. politically and in terms of your external relations, how has that impacted the work of your organization and the goals that you want to achieve? Yes. Um, in some ways, I think U.S. citizens would be the paradigmatic world federalists. We already have a notion of federalism completely ingrained and baked into our identities. We're mm -hmm comfortable with nested identities. I pay my state taxes. Well, I'm actually in the District of Columbia, so I have taxation without representation, um, as well as my federal taxes. But that encourages, in a way, a skepticism of another layer of governance. And I think there is a tendency to be very proud and patriotic, of course, of the foundings of this democracy that paved the way and our constitution paved the way for um, a model of democracy as we see it around the globe. And therefore, there is perhaps a hesitancy 
to look at some of the underpinnings of our system and and give up to another layer of governance or give up to a globalized worldview. Um, The ways that I think that we can confront that and do confront that as an organization are encouraging cultural humility. So fostering a sense of openness and curiosity, promoting international cooperation in real terms. So once again, debunking some of these myths, whether it's the ICC, the ICJ, UN institutions and treaty bodies, understanding some of the ways in which these function and could function better, because of course you can't um, help reform institutions if you're not actively participating therein, goes a long way towards demystification and ultimately encouraging a sense of global citizenship that the challenges that one faces in one's backyard are shared. Pandemics don't respect borders. Crimes Mm. of aggression don't respect borders. Climate issues do not respect borders. And so seeing it not even as a choice, but as really an essential decision for the viability of humanity and again, and our planet as well, is I think how we combat some of these questions or um, skepticisms about why does this matter? Doesn't it seem far off? Doesn't it seem quixotic? Right. Yeah, that's a good strategy to kind of make it uh, practically relevant or to, mm-hmm. to, to get the point across that, hey, you know, everything is way more connected than we think. And also, I, I like that you pointed out the US's own institutional structure that you said it has a format by itself of federalism it's a federal country so the way i thought of it was like maybe you know the the fact that there's already so many layers of nested power nodes let's say kind of also makes u.s citizens more hesitant to create an even higher one and also one that doesn't fall under any U.S. control, to be honest, because participating in global systems means that by definition, systemically, they cannot be the big boss in the room, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I think the U.S. Is a, is a country that is used to that, especially in the 20th century, to have the sense of like control or to be on top of things, especially in its foreign policy. So maybe the idea of, uh, you know, surrendering, quote unquote, the management of its internal and external affairs to power structures that are not under full or at least, you know, majority control of the United States uh, themselves is kind of a is kind of a concept that maybe that worries some people. Yes, absolutely. In some ways, this dialogue is the quintessential American narrative. Um, Mm -hmm. In the United States, school children are taught about the Federalist Papers. These are foundational documents uh, leading up to the promulgation of the United States Constitution that considered the issue writ in broad terms, coarse terms, of big government versus little government. How much Mm -hmm. power to give to a national structure and how much to devolve to the states. And we are taught this in a almost Hegelian dialectical fashion. And it is the narrative that continues today within the United States and presents itself when we think about ourselves within a globalized world system, within a democratic world federation. How much do you have 
individual power at the local level, how much at the national level, and now, of course, how much at the global level. And of course, the current prevailing dynamics within global co cooperation, even where it exists, are non-coalitions of equals. And the United States, that phrase always comes up, first among nations, um, mm. leading the way, coalitions of the willing, etc. I think and believe that global citizens can recognize that their individual interests are not served as well by that sort of thinking, by us first and mm -hmm. then the rest, and that the United States being as large, diverse, and multifaceted a population and country as it is, some individuals have far more in common with a citizen across the other side of the world, whether that be demographically, whether that be philosophically. And many of these big ideas are, in fact, enshrined in traditions to which we already adhere, whether that they come from a religious, philosophical, ideological background. I think the notion that we, we are one world is certainly not a new one. And it sometimes just bears repeating with when the rhetoric of nationalist or patriotic or populist individuals or narratives gets too loud. Right. All right, Rebecca, uh, thank you so, so much for coming on. I really appreciated your input. Uh, I really appreciated the American perspective, the US perspective on uh, the UN, because it's the first time that I've had someone from the United States talk about uh, United Nations related issues. So thank you very much. And before I let you go, I'm going to ask you if you want to plug something or if you have a call to action or anything. But before your plugs or your calls to action, I want to ask you like a super quick question. If you could answer with just three words, what is your idea of an ideal globally federalized world? So distilling the grandest vision down to the most micro words. <laughs> That's if why I, I made the question extra hard to make you <laughs> if distill I as much as you can. Three words. Um, it would be democratic, inclusive, and accountable. Um, there are a lot of different pathways to World Federation. There are a lot of different models. We talked a bit about UN reform. Um, we also provide a platform for ideas of new institutions, um, such as a World Court for Human Rights, UN Parliamentary Assembly, World Constitution. These are all very good ideas with what, uh, that are worth engaging in, um, and you can explore more of them segueing into our plugs on our website, which is globalsolutions.org. We publish a semi-annual journal called Mondial. And if anyone is interested in contributing to that journal, they can reach out to me at outreach at globalsolutions.org. We also have a newsletter with more au courant developments and a blog. We periodically hold events, including our flagship book club, where we uh, entertain authors directly in discussion of their work as it relates to the ideas that animate World Federation. We also have a new forum called Global Conversations, which is an opportunity to engage critically with some of the leading thinkers and activists who are contemplating new avenues, expressions, and modalities of Global World Federation. I would also commend everybody 
to try to get involved with some of the advocacy ideas that we've discussed here. All of them are available on our website. And as we look toward the 25th anniversary of the Rome Statute this summer, there is a unique and timely opportunity to reflect on the continued work and growth and evolution of the International Criminal Court that our organization was seminal in helping bring about and that benefits from continued civil society advocacy and engagement. So thank you again. I very much look forward to engaging in future podcasts and hearing all your wonderful guests who touch on the topics that are so near and dear to our organization. 